Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Well, happy Easter. The claim of Easter is that about 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth died and he came back to life. And for someone who's sort of a committed, lifelong skeptic, I have to say that's been hard for me to believe. I don't have a category for this. I don't know anyone else who's died and come back to life. I have nothing to compare it to. And as hard as this is to believe the resurrection of Christ, it's not the only weird thing the Bible claims to have happened on Easter weekend. The Bible says that when Jesus died, there was this giant earthquake. Well, guess what? 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, earthquakes weren't just happening on a regular basis. This is totally out of the ordinary. The Bible also says that when Jesus took his last breath, that just down the road from where he died in the temple in Jerusalem, this giant curtain tore in half from top to bottom. Weird stuff's going on. The Bible says that when Jesus died, tombs opened, dead people just raised to life. Like, what is going on? Today on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at, of course, the resurrection of Jesus, but we're going to talk about some of the other weird stuff that happens too. Specifically, we're going to look at this supposed magical curtain. So if you've got a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your phone, get it out, turn it on. We're going to begin our Easter story in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Really glad that you're here today. If someone told you they were taking you out to breakfast and brought you to church instead, that's a mean trick. They shouldn't have done that. But it's okay. I'm glad that they, I'm glad they did. In 2022, we decided as a church family that we're going to go through the Bible together from start to finish. We can't cover everything, but we're looking at the major events, sort of the key moments that make up the Bible story. And today's story is going to take us to ancient Israel, and our time period is around 950 BC. And I want to look at the Easter story, but through the story of this mysterious curtain, and while I can't today convince you that everything the Bible claims happened is true, all this out of the ordinary stuff, though I believe it fully in my heart, what I think I can do is paint for you a picture of why. Why was this curtain torn? Why did Jesus of Galilee have to die? And why was he raised to life? You ready? Here we go. Second Chronicles chapter 3. This is our story. It says that Solomon began to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So there's this guy named Solomon. He's the king of Israel. He's the son of another famous king, a guy named David. And he sets out to build a temple for God. Now, interestingly, God doesn't ask him to do this. God doesn't command Solomon to build the temple. This is something that Solomon and actually his father David want to do, sort of as a way to honor God who has been so faithful to them. Now, because we don't live in a time where there's lots of temples, I want to slow down here for a minute and kind of try and understand what's going on. I don't really have a frame of reference for a temple, so I guess the best thing when I think of this, the best thing I can come up with is a church. I think of, okay, it's this place where people gather to meet God. That's not really what a temple is. In fact, this word right here, this word temple in Hebrew, a, a better, honestly, a better translation and just easier to understand 
would be the word house. So all over the world at the time, other cultures are building temples or they're building houses for their gods to come and reside. And often one of the things they would do is they'd build a little room inside their temple, a place that was sort of God's bedroom, a place where he could come and live. In fact, the Babylonians built temples that looked sort of like, um, sort of like pyramids. And right at the top, there was a room. And in that room, they'd put a bed, they'd put uh, food, they'd put a little table, just a place that God could come, their God could come and dwell. So you kind of understand what Solomon is doing. He's trying to make a house. He's trying to make a residence where God's presence can come and live. Now we know that God doesn't live in a temple. He can't be constrained by a building, but you, you sort of go, okay, Solomon in his human mind, he's trying to make sense of God and he's trying to have a relationship with him and honor him. And so he goes, I'm going to build this place where my God can come and dwell. And Solomon remembers that all along God's promise is that he wants to be present with his people. And so Solomon is making a way in his mind, he's making a way for that to be possible. Now, really, to understand the fullness of this, you got to go back just for a minute with me. Go back in history and what we've been learning as we've been walking through the Bible. The Israelites had this thing called a tabernacle, right? This thing that was a tent. God said, build a tent, and that's the place that I will come and dwell. That's the place I will come and meet you. Because remember, the Israelites were a nomadic people. They were always on the move. So they had this tent, this space where God would meet them. And when they'd move on sort of their, their next campsite, wherever God was leading them, they'd pack up the tent. They'd put it in suitcases or something. I'm not really sure. They'd pack it all up and they'd take it with them. And then they'd set it up again because that's where God meets them. Well, they're no longer on the move. Now they're settled. They're in the promised land. They're building houses. They're building cities. They're setting up life. So it makes sense that they would want to create a permanent place where God would dwell, where they could interact with God. And the Bible says they built it in a place called Mount Moriah. Moriah is, throughout the Bible, it's this place that has sort of historical significance of a place where God meets people and he shows them mercy and grace. And so it's in this space on Mount Moriah that Solomon intends to build a temple. Listen to the, some of the description of the temple. It says in verse three that the foundation that Solomon laid for the building of the temple was 90 feet long, and 30 feet wide. So not huge, but in the ancient world, imagine that's pretty big, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. It says that he overlaid the inside with pure gold. That's cool. He paneled the main hall with juniper. He covered it with fine gold and he decorated it with palm trees and chain designs. So just kind of imagine it, kind of imagine walking into this place, gold everywhere. I mean, it's just radiant. It is just shining, reflecting from all the gold. On the walls are carvings of palm trees and things like that. Solomon searches the whole world to find the highest quality, the best lumber that he can find. There is no expense spared in this thing. It says in verse 6 that he adorned the temple. That means he made it beautiful. He adorned the temple with precious stones. The gold that he used was from this place called Purveyum. We are not really sure what that means other than it was likely the place that had the finest gold. He overlaid the ceiling beams, the door frames, the walls, and even the doors of the temple with gold. And he carved cherubim on the walls. So just tons of gold. Images of trees, plants, 
Cherubim. Cherubim are angels. They're not babies in diapers with wings flying around. Angels, these angelic beings, are these ominous sort of beings. Solomon is making a copy of something. He's making the temple to resemble something. Do you see it? It's, it's intended when you look at it to replicate something. Keep going. Let, let, let me show you. It says that he built the most holy place. Its length corresponded to the width of the temple. It was 30 feet long. It was 30 feet wide. And he overlaid the inside of the most holy place with 46,000 pounds of fine gold. Are you doing the math? It's getting kind of expensive, right? Remember what the most holy place is. Again, go back to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent. Inside this tent was a smaller space. It was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. This is the place that God met to interact with his people. And what would happen is the high priest would go into the most holy place and he would take in the blood of a sacrifice from a bull or a goat and he would take the blood in to atone for the, for, for the sins, to get forgiveness for the sins of the people of Israel. Because remember, God says that without blood, there's no forgiveness. So he would go in with the sacrificial blood of an animal, and he would offer that before God. He would meet in that space and get forgiveness for God's people. Solomon is creating the same kind of space that was in the tabernacle here in the temple. He says this, for the most holy place... He made a pair of sculpted cherubim, and he also overlaid them with gold. And so you have these angelic beings. They're massive. Their wings stretch 30 feet from wall to wall. Do you see what he's making? Solomon is in the temple recreating the Garden of Eden. The garden where, remember, way back at the beginning of the Bible, like page one, God creates the world. He creates a land called Eden. He puts a garden in the middle. This is the place where God interacts with his people. This is the sanctuary. This is heaven on earth where God will dwell, where he will walk and talk with his people. It is full of gold. It is full of plants and trees. Solomon is remaking the Garden of Eden. I mean, you think about the imagery. First Kings, you should read it. It gives a little bit more detailed description, describes more in depth the gold and the plants and the flowers and the fruit that is carved into the walls. It talks about how the ceiling of the temple is made to look like the sky. This is, this is the Garden of Eden. One of the things that's in the temple, it was in the tabernacle as well, but Solomon creates something it's a golden lampstand, and on, on each branch of the lamp, there's these, there's these rosebuds. It's made to look like it has life. It's the tree of life. He's making things that bring to mind the Garden of Eden. Think about it. Look at this for a second. If you take what God makes at creation... He makes all of creation. Inside all of creation is this land called Eden. Inside of Eden, specifically, there is a garden. This is the place that God walks and talks, that he interacts with his people. Take creation and lay it over the temple. At the heart, you have the most holy place. This space where God will dwell, will interact with his people. Outside of that, you have the holy place, the rest of the temple. Beyond that, you have the courtyard, Jerusalem, and beyond. This is the Garden of Eden. He's, Solomon is trying to make a space 
fit for God, trying to make a space worthy of God's presence to come and dwell. Isn't that cool? But remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Remember God created this space and he makes Adam and Eve and he puts them there and he says, listen, this is all yours. It's your playground. You can have everything. You can eat from from any of the fruit and the plants and the trees. There's just this one. There's this one tree, just, just one. He says, God says, that belongs to me. Just stay away from that. But everything else is yours. And do you remember what happens? Adam and Eve disobey. They go and pluck fruit off that tree and they sin and they eat that fruit. And so God takes Adam and Eve, and what does he do? He puts them outside the Garden of Eden. It's like he says, you're not going to have the same kind of access that you have to me anymore. And remember at the entrance, Genesis 3 tells us that the entrance of the garden, God puts cherubim, they're sort of like bouncers to say, you, you, you can't go back inside the Garden of Eden anymore. Watch this, verse 14. Solomon built a curtain. He made it of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen, and he put cherubim on it, just like in the Garden of Eden, just like in the tabernacle. Now here in the temple, there is a curtain that divides, that God's presence will come and and dwell in the temple, but there will be a barrier. That space will be like heaven on earth. It will be where God comes and lives, and his presence is, but... There's a curtain, and inside that temple, that curtain would stand, and it would be a a, a constant reminder that God is on one side, and people are on the other. Solomon even puts cherubim on it to resemble the Garden of Eden. It's like it's shouting at people, you can't come back behind this curtain. This curtain exists to separate what is clean from what is unclean, God who is holy from What is unholy? Yes, the high priest could come back, but just one day each year, and he better come back with blood sacrifice because even he is unclean. He he represents people who are unclean, and God is holy. And even when the high priest comes behind the curtain and he's in the presence of God, he doesn't actually see God. God wraps himself in a cloud, and all of it's just shouting at you. You don't have access to God. He is clean, and you are not. And you know he's back there. He's in the back room somewhere. He's doing whatever God does. You know he's there, but you can't be in his presence. You're not worthy. You're not pure. So fast forward a thousand years to Easter weekend. And for all that time, God's been with his people. God's watched over his people. He's protected his people, but he's done it from behind a curtain. He's done it separate from his people. They couldn't really be in his presence. And now you hear that Jesus of Galilee is nailed to a cross. The man who claimed he had come from heaven, he was sent by God to draw people to God. He's nailed to a tree. He's gasping. And when he takes his final breath, in that moment, the curtain just down the road in the temple in Jerusalem, this curtain that stands as a barrier between humanity and God is miraculously torn, starting at the top to the bottom. Do you see what's happened? God has removed the barrier 
He's no longer on the other side of a curtain, separate, holy, separate from what is unholy. The Bible says it this way in Hebrews 10. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place, God's presence. How? By the blood of Jesus. See, it used to just be a high priest, the blood of an animal once a year. Now it's through the blood of Jesus a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is Christ's body. Even in Solomon's temple, it was beautiful. It had the finest everything, but there was this constant reminder in this curtain with the cherubim standing there, uh-uh, you don't get to go back there. That's reserved for holiness. That's reserved only for what is clean. The high priest can, but you can't. See, now because of Christ's Death, because his blood was shed, because of his death for us, all have access to God. He's essentially reopened the Garden of Eden. God is no longer on the other side of a barrier. He's no longer hiding behind a curtain. We have full access to him. Do you see why Jesus died and rose again and why the curtain was torn? It's nothing new here. It's the same message from page one of the Bible. It's the same message we'll hear all the way at the last page of the Bible. It's simply God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with you and with me, and he will tear down. He will eliminate any barrier that stands between us, and that barrier was sin. That barrier was our unholiness. And now we have because of Christ's death, full access. And I love the way he does it because God could have done anything that he wants. He could have drawn this up anyway. He could have handed out membership cards and said, now you and you and you, you can come behind the curtain. You can come see me now. It's not just the high priest. Here's your VIP access. And it could have been this thing that just for the, for the VIPs, for the elite, now more people are welcome, but that's not what God does, is it? He tears open the curtain and now everyone has access to God. No longer is there holy and unholy, clean and unclean. God opens the curtain and he says, let my holiness and my purity fall out on everyone. And everyone has access to God. It's so cool. And yet the story's not done. We haven't even got to the best part because remember the earthquake that happened on Friday? As strange as it was, watch this. There's another one. Matthew 28 says that after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, so Jesus died on Friday afternoon. Fast forward to Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb of Jesus. And there was a violent earthquake, second one in three days. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. And that angel speaks to these women in verse six and says, oh, he's not here. The one that you're looking for, he's risen. Not only was the temple curtain torn down, but now the tomb is empty. And I suppose a person could say, well, earthquakes, fabric tearing, it happens. Maybe you could even argue that it's the earthquake that caused the curtain to tear. Maybe it shook the foundation of the temple so much that just the weight, this curtain was really heavy. Maybe just the weight of it tore it, and it's all a coincidence. But now you have a problem because lots and lots of people watched Jesus hang on a cross. 
Lots and lots of people saw him gasp for his final breath. Lots of people saw him stabbed in the side to make sure that he was really dead. Oh, he was dead. And now he's alive. And you look at it and you consider the whole of Easter. You look at all the weird events that are going on, an earthquake and a temple and a guy coming back to life and, and tombs opening. You go, what does it all mean? If you just look at the whole of Easter, if there's one thing I could tell you today, one thing that you remember, it's simply this. It's that today you might feel like God is still separate, but he's not. You might feel like God is distant, you might feel like God is in some back room and you know he's moving around back there. He's doing something. But you feel like there's this barrier. There's this curtain. Could I simply beg you not to believe that lie? I know that it feels that way sometimes. I've felt it. But you know what? Feelings lie. And God says, I've torn down the curtain. I've made way for you to have access to me. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, God is available to all of us, to you and to me today. Now, here's what I don't know. The temple in Jerusalem, after the curtain was torn, after the death of Christ, the temple stood for another 40 years before it was destroyed. And I wonder, did they put the curtain back up? Historians aren't sure. You can look at all the history books. You won't find an answer. But I wonder, did they put the curtain back up? Because isn't that what we do? Don't we put up barriers between us and God all the time? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. It's an open invitation from the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And what do we do? We throw up barriers. Well, there's too much sin in my life. I... I, I I can't go to Jesus. He doesn't want anything to do with me. I have too many doubts. I can't go to Jesus. My life is a mess. We put up these barriers. Maybe your life has been so hard that you've put up barriers between you and God because your heart, you, you want to protect it. And so you've put up these walls and you've said, I can't trust you, God. There's, barrier, there's a barrier there. Don't we do this all the time? We come up with these barriers to say why we're not worthy of God's love, why we couldn't exist, stand in his presence. Oh, sure, everyone else can. They've been forgiven by the blood of Christ, but not me. I'm not worthy. What barrier have you put up? Because if you feel like there's a barrier between you and God, he didn't put it there. He tore it down. You've put it up. In Christ's death, the curtain peels open. And God's love and mercy and grace and goodness and holiness flows out and fills the temple and fills the world and will fill your heart. And so I want to close today by just praying and I guess just encourage you if you've spent your life believing this lie that there's a barrier between you and God, that there's some distance, that because of sin, because of shame of something you've done because of the shame you feel because someone did something wrong to you. You felt like there's this barrier and you're not good enough. This barrier that God is on the other side and he wouldn't want anything to do with you. Could I beg you today not to believe that lie, but to talk to God and say, God, I have this shame and I have this sin and I don't know what to do with it. God wants to take that 
And he wants to forgive you of your sins. And if you will talk to him today and say, Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you. I believe that you died and rose again. God, today in this moment, will give you new life. Maybe you've been following God for a long time. You've been walking with Jesus for a lot of your life. But don't we put up barriers? Doesn't our heart get hard sometimes? Don't we fall back into old patterns of sin? And I know for me, sometimes there's sin in my life, and it's so big, I go, I don't even want to look at God because I'm ashamed of this thing. Could you today look at the curtain and see that it's been torn? God is not hiding. He's not holding back. He's here, he's with you, and he's with me right now. The curtain is torn, the tomb is empty. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for tearing down the curtain. It costs you the life of your own son, but that's how bad you wanted to be with us. God, today, right now, there's people listening to my voice online on campus who are wondering, is this all a joke? Son of God died to tear down a barrier between me and God. Can that be real, God? Would you right now speak to their hearts? Would you right now tell them that it's a lie to believe that you're separate, that you're distant? to believe that Jesus died for everybody else, for certain people, for good people. Jesus, you didn't die for good people or even to make people good. You died for dead people who are dead in sin, people like me. God, please don't let anyone walk away from today not considering Jesus who died for their sins, choosing to believe today. God, and your promise is that when we believe that Jesus died for us and rose again, you will forgive all our sins, past, present, and future, and give us new life right now. God, for some of us, man, you've torn down the curtain, but we try and put it back up. We heap shame on ourselves. We come up with all these reasons why you wouldn't love us, why you're separate from us, why we're undeserving of your love. We are undeserving of your love, and yet, You've given it through your son, Jesus Christ. God, turn our eyes today towards the torn curtain and towards the empty tomb. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.